This is the turning point. This is the turning point with Mike Fader. Um, man, the world, Hurricane Harvey, now Hurricane Irma, and North Korea, the lunatic in North Korea, practically down on his knees inviting the lunatic who runs the United States to blow up uh, the entire country to start World War III. It is getting very frightening out here. Looks like we're in for nasty weather. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, is it that we know more every second about everything that's going on in the world, or is there actually literally more disasters and insanity and risk of uh, rage and ruin happening? I think maybe it's happening. <laughs> but we didn't always know it every minute, but now we know it every minute, every second, uh, a thousand different ways. Even we can't get away from it on the street because everybody's got their phones plugged in or staring at their cell phones. Um, speaking of which, and this is the turning point with Mike Fader, speaking of which, of disasters, that is to say, and tragedies, uh, this coming Monday I'll be doing a special program, uh, and it is September 11th. Uh, on September 11th, the events of September 11th, 2001, that's this coming Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Well, <clears throat> we have, um, we, the government is going to have to come up with an, uh, $100, $100 billion for uh, Houston and surrounding areas. And now who knows what's going to happen with, with, the co with the coast of Florida and maybe the coast of um, 
Carolina, uh, maybe coast of Louisiana. I have no idea what this hurricane is going to do. I mean, it could, uh, Irma, could find its way straight up the East Coast and um, cause storm surges and floods uh, all the way along the East Coast, all the way up to the top of the East Coast. I don't know. Hard times, very hard times. And it's going to cost <clears throat> tens of billions of dollars, $100 billion to rebuild people's uh, houses, their businesses, their lives. People will have to be removed. People will have to move to other places. There will be places that will not be able to be rebuilt. And uh, there's this old argument, I guess, after Katrina. I mean, there are some places, maybe people, it's not worthwhile living there anymore because of the risk to their lives and um, the cost, the cost uh, to everybody. Maybe uh, with the rising of the oceans and with the... Uh, with the increasing number of storms and violent storms, people say, <clears throat> the weather people say, the scientists say that this is this Hurricane Irma is the worst storm they've ever seen in history in the Atlantic Ocean. It's frightening to even contemplate. And I don't even live down there. I feel really bad for the people who are evacuating. What I wonder about, some, there's a couple of things I wonder about sometimes. So when, when a million people, let's say up to a million people in Florida, and there's a lot of people, a million people evacuate coastal areas, evacuate where they live. Who protects their houses? Who protects their businesses from being completely looted? I mean, you know, the state police and uh, the National Guard and the local cops could be deployed, but who protects them while they're trying to protect um, people's, people's property? I mean, what, what becomes of it? It's just uh, such an incredible... Um, tragedy. And uh, another question I always wonder about is, um, I always ask myself, is the federal government <clears throat> is going to have to um, find $100 billion, maybe tens of billions of dollars, $100 billion to, to rebuild all these places? And they're still in debt, something like $25 billion from Katrina and Sandy and a couple of other hurricanes and storms. So when this money is borrowed, where does it come from? I don't understand. Where does this money come from? China? They don't sell treasury bonds? I mean, what? I guess treasury bonds. I don't know. Um, they raise the interest. They must raise the interest rate on, um, on bonds. And uh, then people buy, uh, people in the entire world, whether they, uh, whether they know whether America is still in good investment or not. I don't know if America is still such a good investment as it once was considered. These American uh, federal uh, bonds were considered one of the most uh, reliable and the most steady and uh, the most predictable investments in the world. And foreign governments, sovereign wealth funds, Saudi Arabia, China, uh, would buy um, <clears throat> billions and billions of dollars of our bond issues. Do you think they still will? I wonder. And uh, I guess that's where it comes from. Borrowing from places like Saudi Arabia, China, Maybe some other countries, international banks. Um, it's just, uh, and the federal debt is trillions of dollars, right? Trillions of dollars. Who is this money owed to? Who is this money owed to? Who owes this money? We owe this money. If the federal government, on behalf of the United States people, is borrowing all this money at a certain interest rate that, you know, for a certain period of time, we, you and me and everybody else, owes this money back to them. I don't think this is money that will ever be paid. Sooner or later, everybody's going to have to forgive these debts and get along. Or not. I don't know. Well, 
<clears throat> we need we need to we need to send this money to uh, to Florida to Texas and to Florida. I mean, we have to do that. That's what we have a society for, right? To help everybody, to help each other. What we don't need right now is a damn wall. We don't need a wall. We don't need a wall across Mexico. We don't have to spend one penny on a wall across Mexico. That would be obscene in the face of what we need all this money for. And uh, we don't need a surge in Afghanistan, although one is taking place now, or a billion-dollar upgrade in our nuclear arsenal. We do not need that because these missiles, once they leave the silos, uh, they'll work well enough to blow up the whole world. We don't need to make sure that the whole world gets blown up 10 times in a row or on top of each other. So um, we don't need to spend a billion-dollar upgrade or $2 billion upgrade on a nuclear arsenal. Also, we don't need to be spending billions and billions of dollars. I mean, when I say billion, I don't even quite know what it means. I mean, does anybody, unless you're in the Treasury Department or you're a, <clears throat> a hedge fund billionaire, but we spend billions of dollars uh, spying on our own uh, citizens. Do we really need that? Do we need to be? Do we need to have our military forces in 149 different countries, either uh, you know, either covert or overt? Do we really need to do that? Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe it's time to withdraw, to retreat. Do you remember this from Vietnam? Uh, what was it called? Retreat with honor, withdrawal with honor, whatever that means. Get out. The Russians were in Afghanistan for 10 years. It destroyed uh, their economy. It destroyed their government. I mean, you know, that's a complicated issue. And uh, it was good in some ways that it destroyed their way of government, their form of government. But it did. Um, and the government that replaced it was for a while uh, something that even had the glimmer of democracy and hope to it. Uh, sorry about my throat. <clears> throat> um, but... Um, you know, now what we have is Putin, you know, a dictator as bad as any monarch or Peter the Great or Catherine the Great, you know, a despot, a dictator, a murderer. And um, but uh, it destroyed Russia. It destroyed the Soviet Union is what it did. Afghanistan and fighting that war in Afghanistan and what it did to the people who came back from uh, to Russia. The soldiers came back to Russia, what it did to Afghanistan um, and what it did to the Russian economy. It destroyed it. We need to get out of there. I mean, our economy is already a total mess. It's a wreck. And we have to borrow all this money to help people in our own country. It's time to retreat. It is time to retreat from most places in the world. Maybe what we could do is we could pick up a, we could pick a couple of places strategically to concentrate what is still a very powerful military force for the United States. Maybe pick uh, some areas near Japan or China, although every one of these things is risking World War III. But uh, some air, maybe an area near Japan or China, and maybe near the scene of the main battle with ISIS, which is also astoundingly complicated and involves the Russians, right? And then leave the rest of it and get the hell out. Get the hell out. Whatever amount of humanitarian uh, help we are providing by having all our military forces in all these places all over the world, almost everywhere in the world, or the CIA or both together, whatever help we're providing, <clears throat> we're going to have to just forego that and provide that help uh, to people in our own country. Sometimes you do. You have to take care of charity begins at home. Sometimes you have to take care of your own family, i.e. the domestic United States. Rather than go out in the whole world, that is if the, if the uh, motive is benevolent, 
very often the reason that our military forces, of course, and the CIA are in all these other countries that our motive is not benevolent. It is merely to enrich people who are already rich and powerful and uh, just to keep our thumb down as much as we can on everybody else in the world. It really is like a race to see who's going to be the uh, top dog. And it always was. It always was. Now it really looks like China is on the ascendant. The joker in this whole pack is North Korea. And I should say the government of North Korea. I mean, who knows what it's like to be a North Korean? I mean, you can't, you can't really know. There are people who have um, written novels. I mean, has anybody escaped from North Korea and written the great North Korean novel? I don't really know. There are novels written about North Korea, um, and they are, you know, um, maybe by people who have some knowledge of what goes on there. And uh, there's one, I forgot the name of it, I think it won some sort of prize, which is absolutely frightening. It's that ant-like mentality. People have been brainwashed and trained for so long, and if not uh, brainwashed and trained to be um, <clears throat> loyal followers of the great leader, the glorious leader, whatever, the beloved leader, whatever he's called, <laughs> the beloved leader, um, if they're not trained to be that way from literally from birth, then they're just scared to be that. Now, they have to be that way because they're, this, this man who runs the place will murder them and their whole families. You can't say one word. You can't even look funny at somebody who's in the government or a soldier or anybody. And half the country is in the army or some form of national service, which is dedicated basically to aggression. It's a terrible place. And um, like a lot of terrible places, it's one rotten apple that could spoil the entire uh, bunch of apples in the entire earth. I mean, what is going to happen over there? How do you deal with North Korea? Can any of this be blamed on Trump? I guess it's easy enough to say, you know, um, oh, because of Trump's belligerence or because he's so unpredictable, they are becoming worse over there. They've been coming, quote unquote, they've been coming worse. <laughs> they've been becoming worse for decades. This is an inherited lunacy from grandfather to father to son. And um, they just keep doing whatever they're doing. It doesn't matter what our, who our administration is, what are in the intentions of our administration. Yes, somebody has to deal with them diplomatically. Don't want to go to war with these people, though they are absolutely inviting and provoking war. What if they send missiles? Um, they sent one missile uh, no longer than three or four weeks ago right over Japan. What if they send a missile even by accident and it lands in Japan? God forbid it lands in a populated area, right? They're attacking Japan. Then what is Japan supposed to do about it? Just sit there and take it? Astounding thing. Well, anyhow, <clears throat> since I mean, I'm thinking since Trump is a billionaire, maybe what he can do to help fund um, the, uh, the recovery of uh, Irma and, uh, you know, what's of the devastation caused by uh, Harvey and Irma, maybe he could sell a couple of golf courses. Now, I read in the paper the other day, that he has um, foregone, that he forgoes his presidential salary of $400,000 and um, gives it back, lets the government keep it and use it for other things. Who knows what they're using it for? <laughs> Spying on all of us, I don't know. But uh, so, yeah, you expect him to do that. I mean, that's the right thing to do, a billionaire like that or somebody who says he's a billionaire. Um, and he said that he would be donating a million dollars or something like that to uh, relief uh, efforts in um, Texas. Well, I hope he does. So far, it's just talk. But um, 
since he is actually a billionaire or says he is, he can sell a couple of golf courses and hotels and maybe he can gather up $100 million to contribute to flood relief instead of just maybe, you know, making visits there uh, with his wife, his model wife down in Corpus Christi, that poor woman. Maybe he should just do something real and beneficial for a change instead of just shooting off his big mouth, like really just take his own money and go down there and maybe he could leave the government. I don't know who runs the government anyhow. Does anybody run the government? Maybe, maybe he could just take some time off and go down there and just help for, for two weeks, take a break to help with, uh, with flood relief. Wouldn't do him any harm and uh, might, actually, uh, might actually help. Anyhow. Um, but as usual, uh, if he goes, anytime he goes down to one of these places, <clears throat> he looks like a hero. All he has to do is show up there, right? And he looks like a hero to his diehard supporters. Now, it's not just him, though. He has various people he's appointed to high-level positions who are very rich. Um, this Betsy DeVos, this uh, dimwit who runs the education department, uh, she's a, a billionaire. And Gary Cohn, who is his head economic advisor, was the head of Goldman Sachs. Steve Mnuchin, Rex Tillerson, the Treasury Secretary, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, they all have tens of millions of dollars. How much are they giving? They should tell us. They should take the money out immediately and give it to the right charities in, um, in Houston and down in Florida. And if they got all their corporate friends together, they could find another couple of hundred million dollars uh, for disaster aid and rebuilding. If any president has ever had if any president has ever had the connections to raise billions of dollars in aid personally from his friends, it's Trump and all his rich corporate buddies. And they should just do it. Be an example to the rest of us. Yeah, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to make even more money for themselves and other people. Him and uh, his, uh, his uh, pain-in-the-ass daughter, Ivanka Trump, and his even bigger pain-in-the-ass son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a couple of pompous, low-life thieves, the two of them. Anyhow, well, uh, while we were all making our dono donations to disaster relief organizations, we sent some money to the Houston Food Bank, what little we could afford from my house. In addition to the public money that comes from our taxes, <clears throat> and all these rich people who we could ask to maybe, you know, sacrifice billions of their own fortunes, um, maybe, uh, maybe we could appeal to the two boxers who a couple of weeks ago made $100 million dollars. Two guys who pounded the living crap out of each other for I don't know how many uh, rounds it was um, get a total of $100 million. What do they do with it? And what about all the, uh, the baseball and the football and basketball players and the soccer players who are making tens of millions a year? How about, how about getting together um, a fund where they contribute something like $50 million between all of them? Wouldn't be a big deal for them. The average player in uh, Major League Baseball, which I watch a lot, watch a lot of, uh, makes something like, I don't know, five, six million dollars a year. And maybe we could appeal to, uh, speaking of uh, very rich people, we can appeal to Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and all the other tech multi-billionaires to chip in a billion each. Uh, there's probably 30 or 4 billionaires, uh, multi-billionaires in the U.S. And there's a couple of hundred thousand of other people who have tens of millions of dollars because of income inequality. I mean, the Walton family uh, of Walmart have $100 billion between them. I wish there was a way to force people to pay 10% of all their assets to the people in Houston. There's people who have over, let's say, $10 million. Pass some law. <laughs> of course, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. Tax relief, right? Uh, and this goddamn Trump, you know, the man has 
luck on his side. He's lucky, you know, he's lucky in a horrible sort of way. This natural disaster, Harvey, and now this one, Irma, uh, they're like gifts for him. I hate to say this, but they're like gifts for him. It takes the relentless spotlight off him and his family's crimes and dangerous behavior. All he has to do is show up, right? He shows up in these places. He's eventually, he's going to show up in, uh, in Florida. He shows up with his wife and not be a total fool, promises help, and he looks presidential, quote-unquote. I mean, this is a guy who became really famous as a reality TV star. He's obsessed with photo ops, publicity, you know, ratings, all form in those substances, guy. And what substance occasionally shows its rat face from under all that sound and fury is very nasty, right? Um... I think if Trump actually prays, which I doubt he does, well, who knows? He's probably thanking God for these hurricanes and for North Korea. I don't know about North Korea. That could turn out to be a real problem for him. But, uh, you know, the fact that these people are all suffering down there is not a problem for him. It's actually a gift. I mean, what did he, he went down to uh, Corpus Christi, you know, his first visit, I think it was down there. Comes out of a relief center talking to the governor or maybe the mayor. <clears throat> and there was, uh, what, a thousand people, they estimated, who were applauding him, you know, you know, uh, God bless the president, and they were applauding him. And he was basking in it. He loves this. This is a greater opportunity for him to be a big star and everybody to applaud him and say what a great guy he is. And he has to go back to Washington and uh, hopefully deal with, um, with Special Prosecutor Mueller. And I hope his investigation is proceeding. I really do. I mean... Um, but uh, if Mueller finds real evidence that Trump did something unconstitutional and illegal or that his people did or that he did, uh, then Trump probably what he'll do now with all these disasters, he'll go straight to his ignorant followers and he'll denounce the, uh, the quote unquote elites. He could e- they could easily be violence on a large scale because everybody will see him as a savior, as the president who's going to save everybody. You know, we're, we're suffering from disasters when there's disasters in society either long-running disasters or intermittent, overwhelming disasters, this is what happened with 9-11, people will automatically, it's emotional, it's primitive, rally around a leader and hope this leader saves them, does the right thing. Sometimes they do save them by doing the right thing and being the right thing, like Roosevelt, like ultimately Lincoln. But it wasn't George Bush, and it's not going to be Donald Trump, Anyhow, I've been reading in the paper, you know, um, <clears throat> that, um, that they're closing the schools in Houston. And they'll probably close the schools in Florida, too. All the schools have been closed. And all the schools in, um, in parts of Florida will be, cold, will be closed, too. But the life goes on anyhow. With all these disasters, life continues to go on. And um, 2,000 miles away from Houston and 1,000 miles away from Florida... Um, the vastness of this country, life continues. In New York City, here in New York City, <clears throat> there's been a kind of a chill in the air for the last week and a half, and the light is really starting to go, which is depressing, both in the morning and the evening. And fall seems to be very early this year. It's an ominous feeling. And speaking of ominous feelings, just like death and taxes and global warming, the first day of school was this week. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American 
history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom's ready to sell. You're lucky if you can find a seat. You're fortunate if you have time to eat. Into the slot, you gotta hear something that's really hot. With the one you love, you're making romance. All day long, you've been wanting to dance, feeling the music from head to toe. Round and round and round you go. First day of school, God help us all. <laughs> Speaking for myself, right? Speaking for myself. Up where I live, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, within a 10-block area of where I live, it's everything from preschool all the way through graduate school. That is Columbia. I'm 10 blocks away from Columbia University. So there's tens of thousands of people coming back for the school year, and uh, some of them coming in as freshmen for the first time. Here visiting with their parents and... Well, the parents have gone home now. And um, uh, a lot of these kids up there have a lot of money. People go to Columbia generally, except for the scholarship people, uh, have a hell of a lot of money. A lot of them are from um, China and um, places in the country uh, where they, um, they um, are coming well-prepared financially. Well, rich or poor, all the kids in my neighborhood, right, went back to school yesterday. They went back to school. Yeah, I don't know when Columbia started, maybe last week. But the public school started yesterday. Kids across the hall in my apartment building just started yesterday. But um, they've been in their schools and, uh, you know, whatever school, elementary or junior high, for a couple of years. So they're not, they're not starting for the first day of school. But for millions of kids in this country, it was their first day at school um, and their first day in a new class, in a new school, or sometimes forever. I mean, there are probably a million or a couple of million kids who went to school for the first time 
They went to school for the first time. And um, it's, um, you know, if you, you might remember that. I don't remember. I'm too old. <laughs> there are some things I remember, but some things I don't. I do not remember my first day ever at, um, at elementary school. I don't remember it. But uh, some, people, some people might remember it. And uh, <clears throat> it wasn't, um, I think for most people who remember it, it was one of the great traumatic events of their lives. Uh, unless they have been in preschool, a lot of people in preschool and pre-kindergarten now. But back in the day there, um, when you went to school, the first um, class you went to, the first school you went to and the first class in the first school, first grade, was kindergarten. And um, that was it. Until then, you had been home. In my neighborhood, you had been home. You had spent the first part of your life from zero, from infancy up until the time you were about five years old, with whoever it was, your mother, your aunts, your father, your uncles, your grandfather, your grandmother, that's who took care of you or other people who helped take care of you. But um, now they cast you adrift. They throw you to the wolves and leave you with strangers. And there's a lot of people who are uh, terrified of it. I remember uh, taking my, uh, I don't remember my son's first day of school, uh, but I do remember... Uh, taking my daughter for her first day ever of school. And all the all these five-year-olds are gathering in the elementary school. Uh, right, it was around the corner from where we live. But she was heartbroken. And I was heartbroken. I did not want to see her go. I did not want to see her go, although I'm trying as hard as I can. And I, I know that most parents who take their kids to school for the first time like that and leave them in the playground with the other kids, <clears throat> with these strangers... These uh, teachers, all of whom could be who knows what. <laughs> you have to trust that they're doing the right thing. They don't always do the right thing, right? You read stories, and you just don't want to send your kid off, right? Um, it's such it's 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 one of the first great separations between parents and children. And I remember my daughter was crying and crying and crying, and wanted to come back. And I guess probably uh, she was picking up on my own, you know, feelings, which I think are universal, but I probably uh, was not so good at hiding them as other people, <clears throat> of, um, of feeling um, torn, you know, to, uh, to let her go. But I had to. And she went in. Um, well, that's what happens. And for millions of kids right now, uh, as of yesterday or maybe sometime this week, and probably it was in late August for some other kids in other parts of the country, it was the first day of school. <clears throat> but as I say, for more millions of kids, it wasn't the first day of school. It was just going back to school. And probably a lot of them look forward to it, being with their friends, um, you know, maybe not looking forward to sitting in, in class, or maybe some of them were, but being with their friends, getting back with your friends. Um, so it's the new year. And this is the, this is the new year, right? It's far more consistent with... Um, with the seasons and long habit of going back to school as the new year, much more than January 1st is the new year. Uh, once, you, once you go to school, start in kindergarten, and you make your way through high school, then every September, uh, you know, sometimes even late August, like I said, in some places, it's the real new year. Every, every early September is the real new year. You feel that old excitement, or in my case, some other people's case, kind of depression, or mixed feelings, you know. Freedom is up, summer and freedom are up, and it's time to go back to work. And um, for me, school was generally a huge source of anxiety, <clears throat> like everything else seems to be. But there was my unusual home situation. Uh, my mother 
poor mother as crazy as she could possibly be. And I didn't know, <clears throat> I really didn't know, based on experience uh, in my young life already, whether when I went to school, not just for the first day of school, but every day that I went there up until the time I was about 15, <clears throat> I didn't know whether she was going to be um, there when I got home. I didn't know whether she was going to be alive or dead when I got home. This is just based on the experiences I had growing up. And so there was, I always had that conflict when I was leaving the house every day to go to school when I was a kid. I mean, I really wanted to get away from her. And I wanted to get out in the sunshine in the world and be with other kids. But at the same time, I was scared to leave her alone all day at school, nervous about what was going on there. And did that make for a calm adjustment at school? I had uh, <clears throat> a terrible case of what you would call ADD, I guess. Now it's called ADD, more like triple A, triple D. A-A-A-D-D-D-D. <laughs> and this was before school psychologists were everywhere and all the pills that are available these days and all the diagnoses, right? I mean, half the kids in the country, little kids, are taking pills for being fidgety or they can't sit still or they're, they don't like authority. What's new, right? Um, and I couldn't stand authority at all, um, especially if it came from women. I grew up in a matriarchy. It was my grandmother, my aunts, uh, my mother. <clears throat> always uh, threatening me, telling me what to do. I mean, they basically ran the whole family, that part of the family I was in. And when I was going to elementary school back in the day again, it was all women. I don't know what it's like now. I don't know if there's many more elementary school teachers who were men. I think there are than there were when I was a kid. But back in the 50s, it was all women, uh, including very often the principals of the elementary schools. <clears throat> And to make matters worse, in my case, in my elementary school, PS 132 in Queens, um, the principal, whose name was Mrs. Flinker, and a great name, Mrs. Flinker, was an old friend of my grandmother's. They had gone to, um, to Hunter College and graduated from Hunter College together um, back around 1911. And they had been young teachers. Uh, they started out as young teachers in the slums of East New York. And this, uh, this goes all the way back to World War I days. And, uh, well, back to school. <clears throat> back to school. Now, why is it... Uh, I don't know if it's still this way either. I mean, I don't know. I don't... Uh, my my granddaughter is um, going on 10 months old, so there's no back to school for her. And I don't have that much to do with little kids right now uh, other than her. Uh, I don't know if it's changed. I don't know if this has changed either, but it, when I was a kid, girls always seemed to look forward to school more. They were definitely better behaved. The girls were better behaved. They had all their notebooks. They had their loose leaf binders, their colored tabs, pencils, all that stuff, all in their neat little bags. They, they, they did better in class. Girls did better in class. And they knew more answers. They did their homework, that kind of thing. But our boys, uh, still, our boys that way, they were fidgety. Of course, now they have all these pills and psychologists. And um, But I think, people, I think people are still fidgety from all the... <clears throat> all the um, Stimulus from all the uh, cell phones and everything else that's plugged into their face all the time. Anyhow, boys were always more fidgety. Um, they were squirmy. They were fidgety. They were much more that way than girls. And I don't know why this is. Is that biological? Or, or maybe girls were expected to be good and boys were allowed to be at least a little bad, right? You know, not paying attention to all the rules, um, society's expectations. Huck Finn, right? Boys could be Huck Finn, but what could girls be? Now, I think things are changing, and that's good. It's equality, right? Uh, but in those days, boys will be boys, and it's still that way. Look at uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump 
we have two overgrown boys being boys in charge of nuclear weapons. Um, <clears throat> so in my elementary school, boys were boys, and this was a but this was a fairly calm little neighborhood. Uh, the bad boys were boys maybe who talked in class. <clears throat> they stayed out in the hallways, or they were nasty. Occasionally, they said something mean. <laughs> maybe there was a little pushing and shoving in the schoolyard, but not much. This was not a poverty area. It's just basically well-behaved, lower middle class, essentially. We didn't have little sharks and jets roaming around, you know, training to be uh, bigger criminals. And, uh, but I think things have changed. School was hard for me, too, because um, <clears throat> I was uh, short, very short, shorter than anybody, even than the girls in my class, and skinny. I was like a midget. And this lasted straight through the sixth grade when I was 11 years old, maybe around 12 when I started to grow. And this is even into my first year of junior high. I didn't really start growing, actually, till I was close to 13, which was a source of constant embarrassment to me and anguish. And um, <coughs> sorry about that. I've got uh, late, uh, late blooming summer allergies. I know it's disturbing to listen to that on the radio. But what can I do? What can I do? I don't know. I try. I have my water. I have my special tea I drink, steaming. I'm steamed. I steamed to come here. Absolutely steamed. Um, well, anyhow, so here I am going to school and shy and afraid of everybody, especially afraid of uh, girls, more shy even than a regular boy. But uh, I did start to notice girls in a different way, not just as uh, alien creatures who wore dresses and played with dolls. When I was around... Nine or ten, I think. But like I say, I was still too shy to do anything about it, except <clears throat> I remember one time. It was an exception. One time this happened. It happened for a little while, and it didn't happen before. It didn't happen after for a while. And I don't know how it happened. But um, <clears throat> I actually had a kind of girlfriend in the fifth or sixth grade. And I remember her name. Her name was Dillis Norgebauer. Dillis Norgebauer and she was one of the old-time uh, residents, one of the old-time German Lutheran families in my town. They were the original residents of uh, this town, Laurelton. Later on, it was mostly Jews and Italians uh, and others. But uh, the original people were um, basically uh, German Lutherans and Irish. <clears throat> and Dillis uh, was a blue-eyed blonde. Yes, she was what my grandmother called in her nasty uh, uh, way, <laughs> using the nasty Yiddish word, I should say, uh, a shiksa, which is a nasty Yiddish word for a Christian girl. And my grandmother would uh, always be warning me about them. I don't know if she ever got a look at Dillis Nogabauer, but she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And she was my first little girlfriend. And we walked home from school together because she lived not too far from my house. And I actually carried her books. I did. I carried her books because that's what a man did. <laughs> if, you had, if you had a girlfriend, you carried their books. She was twice my size, but I carried her books anyhow. And where is Dillis now? I have no idea. Uh, I suppose it wouldn't be hard to find out, to locate her on the net, right? But I think I prefer to remember her in that, uh, you know, that childhood dreamlike state of infatuation, which still remains. History. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love 
world it would be. <clears throat> That's probably true. You love somebody to love you back, what more do you need? Well, <clears throat> you need other things. What do I remember about my elementary school? Do you remember your elementary school? I mean, it's probably easy to remember. They say, though, when people get older, like old, like me, they have more vivid memories. And I think that's true. I know it's true of their childhood than they do even their short-term memories, things that happened recently. Um, but I don't know how far back you have to go to remember. Maybe how many people remember their elementary school teachers' names. I mean, do you remember your elementary school teachers' names? I, I do. I remember the names. But I remember, I remember the, the mean ones and, and the good-hearted ones. <laughs> the ones who were always um, looking like they were going to eat you, right? Like witches from a fairy tale. And then I remember the really good-hearted, sympathetic ones. Uh, most of these women were mothers or even grandmothers themselves. So, and then a couple of them were, were ref, what was referred to um, back in the old days as old maids, right? Um, and I remember my school, PS 132, <clears throat> they had old uh, wooden desks joined by, you know, by uh, iron, scrollwork iron. And they were old, scarred desks. And people's names were carved on them from way back. You know, this is, this is they had brass inkwells, which we didn't use. We were using... Um, not ballpoint pens. This was like a little bit before ballpoint pens that everybody had them anyhow. They were used, we were using pencils, that's all. Pencils and, and uh, pads and notebooks. Pencils and notebooks. But they had brass, leftover brass inkwells. That's how old these things. These are back from the 20s and 30s. And um, these uh, old uh, school uh, desks, they were joined together. And there was something comforting about them. I mean, there was a kind of history to them. You know, you know that uh, who knows how many kids sat in them before and would sit in them again. So they, it give you a place in time. You know, it's, it situated you in time. And I remember the hallways in, uh, in elementary school, the beginning of hallways in all public schools. Uh, you never went into the hall. <clears throat> you never went to the hall except to go to and from class. You didn't hang out in this hallway. Um, you know, or you could get a bathroom pass. That was it. You did not hang out in the hallway, or you went to the principal's office. If you spent, if you loitered 
in the hallway, they would send you to the principal's office. If you talked too much, they would send you to the principal's office. If you pushed somebody or it said something mean in the schoolyard, off you go to the principal's office. And the principal's office was the gateway to hell, or at least possible doom on this earth, anyhow. That's, that's the way it was. It was something, and something about that first experience with the principal in elementary school and later on the principals in other schools, but the principal in elementary school, when you're still little, I mean physically little, and you're still a little kid, <clears throat> the power and the ominous presence of the principal, later on the dean, they call you to a kid, they sit in their outer office, and then you see them go in the principal's office, would you ever come out alive? I mean, they were the living embodiment of society's superego. And uh, they were there to stop crime in its tracks. Just the way they didn't stop Hitler at Munich, you had to stop a little kid from talking too much. And that would straighten him out for the rest of his life. You know, he would be a boon to society rather than a criminal. Um, but uh, there was a special relationship uh, between, uh, like I say, my principal and my uh, grandmother. They knew each other. And because uh, I was a little shrimpy kid, you know, without a father, uh, the, the principal took pity on me and gave me um, a little uniform and made me a crossing guard. I was a school crossing guard. Uh, these were kids out in these neighborhoods where there hardly was any traffic at all. I mean, it was a car once every uh, <clears throat> 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But what they did was they put kids in the crosswalks <clears throat> or in the middle of the streets, and they gave me, um, they gave you a little vinyl belt that went, um, like a vinyl belt that went across your shoulder down to your waist and a vinyl belt around your waist. And on the vinyl belt was, uh, it was white vinyl, and uh, there was a badge. I had a badge. <laughs> it was my first badge. Later on, I had a badge when I was a... Uh, blue and gold badge when I was a New York City uh, probation officer and then a state probation officer. But I had a badge. I don't think I was a sergeant. There was the, 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 the little boy, never a girl, <laughs> but uh, now it would be girls. Um, the little boys who were in charge of the little um, detail, the little uh, SEAL team of, um, of crossing guards was uh, a sergeant. It had maybe a slightly different color badge. I don't know. But I was very proud of that. It was, uh, to that date, to that point, uh, my only feeling that I had ever had of real uh, worth and authority in the world. And I always wanted to be a cop, which eventually wound up being something like one. <clears throat> but these trappings, these signs and symbols and physical objects that meant, you know, they still mean, you know, for a lot of people, masculinity, uniforms, badges, medals, guns. I didn't have a gun. They didn't give me a gun when I was a crossing guard. Maybe I would have blasted some uh, driver who was not coming to a full stop. But then we, we, you know, our job was to stop them. You hold up your hand, stop. We had a little sign that said stop. And it was a tremendous authority. And what I got to do is protect other kids. I just held up my hand, the car stopped, and uh, it was tremendous power. And for the good. It was just like Superman, right? <laughs> and one thing I remember about... Uh, elementary school was the walk, the walk to school, and especially the walk home after school, uh, the walks to school and back. There were uh, always um, <clears throat> cliques of kids, you know, cliques, um, and uh, who, would hang, who would hang out together on the way there, pick up kids, you know, in front of their houses and sort of gather together on the streets and then walk to school and walk home. And then there were the loners, like me, who didn't fit in, strange and one way or another, you know, and, and I think back in those kids, those loners, I was one of them, 
And I see some of them some on the street sometimes now. When I go out on the street in front of my building or walk around near my building, I see these kids on the street who are still loners. They're a little odd. They're a little different than other kids, and they're not with the crowd. You know, these things stay the same. These are eternal. The cliques of kids, kids who are popular, kids who hang out together, who are capable because of the way they were raised or their personalities of uh, forming societal bonds who don't have terrible social anxiety. And then there's the kids who are the oddballs, who are the strange ones. And um, um, I really, I feel so sorry for them. I feel like going over to them and I feel like stopping them, of course. My heart breaks for them. And I want to stop them and say, <clears throat> don't worry. You're okay. Whatever bad thing you think about yourself, even whatever bad thing they say about you, it's plain crap. They're wrong. You're good. You can be their friend. They can be your friend or not. But there's nothing wrong with you. You know, I feel like looking back after all this time and just and telling one of these kids. But um, anyhow, I remember uh, <clears throat> the first day of school, like I said, is that terrible uh, separation anxiety. And uh, I, see, um, I see people, um, you know, that, that's not the first separation anxiety. I mean, there's all these developmental things. I mean, my, like I said, my, my granddaughter, who is about 10 months old now, almost, uh, she's in a temporary um, developmental phase where she, had to be, she has to be touching or hanging on to her mother, my daughter, every second. You know, she spends five seconds apart from her, and then she reaches out and grabs her. You still there? Yeah, she's still there. Um, uh, this is connected, uh, as are so many like different kind of growth stages, with this innate desire. It's like this conflict that goes on throughout life, that until you finally you maybe get a personality of your own and <clears throat> you develop an ego. It's this uh, innate conflict, the drive to be independent, and the same, the concurrent fear at the same time of losing touch, uh, literally and figuratively, first with your mother, then generally with your parents. Uh, I remember when my son was uh, around three or four, he had a Superman outfit, <laughs> real cute, and he'd run ahead of me on the street in front of the Museum of Natural History where we lived near there. And maybe he was flying, maybe go out to, f uh, to fight the bad guys. And at a certain point, he'd look back with, uh, <clears throat> with terrible anxiety just to make sure, after he had run ahead a few steps, to make sure I was still there protecting him. I mean... Superman, of course, himself never had that problem as a kid. Uh, he was uh, sent off uh, to Earth when he was just a baby, an infant. But uh, poor Jor-El and Lara. <laughs> Is that their names? Jor-El and Lara, his parents. Talk about separation anxiety. Um, anyhow, the first day of school. Come and gone. That was yesterday. And kids will get used to it. And, um, you know, you just have to get used to it yourself. Um, you, it's... Um, it's, uh, it's a hard thing, right? It's the first time that you, uh, when you're a kid, it's the first time you're taken there and the first time you learn that there's a world outside, which is necessary and absolutely necessary to, to mingle and uh, to socialize and to grow up in the world and be a person, not just be attached as some uh, addendum or some attachment to your uh, mother or your father. Um, but uh, I see everybody with their phone apps. I think maybe... Maybe people, is there a mother app? Is there a mother app on phones that you could press when you're a kid and uh, it automatically um, sings you lullabies plugged into your ear and has little videos of mothers putting kids to sleep? I don't know. That would be nice, right? That would be nice. Well, first day of school. Um, and first day, of, and like I say, you know, once you go back to school, 
first day and you go back to school for years and years and years and years, even go through college, it does seem like the beginning uh, first day of, uh, of the year. And even when you're grown up, when you're an adult, you've been on vacation and you, um, you, uh, <clears throat> you have to go back to work. You go back to school, then you go back to work. And um, uh, it's a tough world. It's a tough world. I'm looking around. I'm seeing all these disasters everywhere. Things could happen on the street. I mean, but you've got go, you to go ahead with it. You've got to live. You've got to keep doing what you're doing. You've got to bring your kids up in the right possible way that you can, the best possible way you can, and um, try to protect them from whatever disasters there are out there. Uh, that's all you can do. That's the best you can do. And do your best. All right. Uh, this is Mike Fader, and uh, don't forget, uh, we're going to uh, do a special, I'm going to do a special um, show this coming Monday at 9 a.m. on September 11th, talking about uh, the events of September 11th, 2001, and uh, the effects they had on everybody, uh, especially people who were down there uh, for the years afterwards up until now, and on politics and everything else. That's this coming Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the turning point. Let's just, uh, we'll go straight to the, to, to the end theme here. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Well, it's all Someone to tell you everything Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring Maybe a diamond ring Well, it's all right Even if they say you're wrong Well, it's all right Sometimes you gotta be strong Well, it's all right As long as you got so much to lay Somewhere down the road when somebody plays Purple Haze Well, it's all